had been looking for an outlet for my creativity that also talked about community, that also was working towards some sort of greater good. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to design entrepreneur Jean Lin. Jean is best known as the founder, curator, and creative visionary behind Colony, the designer's co-op. Colony is a community of independent furniture, lighting, textiles, and objects designers coming together on a New York City stage to celebrate American design with an international audience. And the roster includes designers such as Beck Britton, Meg Callahan, Allied Maker, Flat Vernacular, Studio Paolo Ferrari, Grain, Hiroko Takeda, and more. Prior to founding Colony, Jean trained as a fashion designer, earning her BFA from Parsons School of Design, and then gained professional experience in a number of roles as a designer, editor, trend forecaster, curator, and educator. She's also founded the fashion brand Dressed in Yellow, as well as the charitable design organization Reclaim NYC and Tribeca Design District. Before studying design, Jean actually started out in social services. And while her current professional work may appear very different on the surface, as you'll hear in our talk, everything she does is underscored by a very clear and direct mission to take care of community and build healthy and nurturing ecosystems for everyone to thrive. Here's Jean. My name is Jean Lin. I work and live in New York City, and I own a gallery called Colony. We are a physical space, and we also do design and consulting as well. And I do it because I love it. I love design, and I love making my own way, and I love putting something out into the world that's going to last, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I love that you love it. We need more love in the world. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Tell me about where you grew up, what your childhood was like, what kind of a kid were you? I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, I was a tomboy. So I'm Taiwanese-American. My parents were born and raised and lived in Taiwan until their adulthood. They came over when my dad came here for grad school and I was born in Arizona. My brother, my older brother was born in Taiwan. So when I was like two, one or two, they moved to Massachusetts and I've, I lived there. I 
growing up um, ever since then. The fact that I'm the child of immigrants, um, first generation American, really informed my childhood, whether I wanted it to or not. I grew up in a very sort of Massachusetts suburban, very white town and area. And I was sort of like one of seven non-white kids in my school and like two of them were related to me. I didn't know it at the time, but it kind of, it really informs who I am today. The fact that I grew up in that place in that time in the, in the eighties and nineties, I was a middle child. So I was very sort of textbook book middle child. I didn't, you know, I was only girl. So I kind of took, I kind of ran after behind my brother a lot, my older brother and did all the sports he did and had all the interests he had. And it's kind of like a muddy memory of what that was like. There's like spots of like clarity of like, oh, that was really important. That thing my parents used to say to me was really important. But other than that, it's like this very generalized thing of like child of immigrants, tomboy, because I had two brothers and didn't grow up in design at all. So yeah, that's interesting. What profession were your parents engaged in? They're both retired now, but my dad was an engineer, a computer engineer, and his sort of shining glory of his career was he worked on text-to-speech, like the kind of programming behind like what Stephen Hawkins used and like that the whole kind of like pioneering of text-to-speech engineering. And then my mom was an educator all her life. She taught in Taiwan. When she came here, she kind of worked in corporate America because that's kind of what she had to do. She got her master's in education. Um, And then for most of the time that I can remember growing up, she left corporate America and started teaching in jails. She started at a juvenile facility near us. And then she went to a men's prison. And then she ended up being at a women's prison for a lot of my adult life. She taught there until she retired five or six years ago. Wow, that's really fascinating. Did she bring stories home? And were they cautionary tales? Or were they tales of redemption or injustice? She's like, specifically bred to do this, that kind of work. She always felt more content and more at peace when she was working within the jail system than she was when she was working in corporate America. Um, So the tales that she brought home were kind of harrowing, but they're always told with kind of this like peace, like this is how the world is. And this is how like these people are people. And even though they did these terrible things, like this is how we should treat everybody, that kind of thing. I always think my mom is this like incredibly special person because that was the kind of work that she was actually meant to do. And I think that social work and social services is a very unique kind of person who can do that for their whole entire lives. I agree. It sounds like um, very compassionate and also very non-judgmental, but it also takes a real resilience of spirit to be able to kind of go there and be immersed in all kinds of harrowing situations, right? Including those of injustice and including those of violence. 100%. Be able to compost it in a way that makes it nutritious 
ultimately. I mean, this is a little known fact about me is I actually worked in social services before I moved to New York and started studying fashion. I studied psychology for my first degree and worked in social services for a year and a half before I moved to New York. And that's, you're 100% right. You have to be resilient. It takes a special constitution to be able to do that for your livelihood. I knew pretty quickly that I did not have what it took to do that for the rest of my life. So then I moved to New York. I mean, the thing is, is I wanted to help people. When people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was little, I would say a doctor because I thought I wanted to help people. And then I actually did pre-med for a while along with psychology at UMass. And I'm not good at math and science. (laughs) And I could not be a doctor. Pre-med lasted about three quarters of a semester before I was like, this is not going to happen. I was trying my hardest, my very hardest, and still just bring like scraping home Bs. And then they were like, yeah, you're going to need like straight A's to even be considered to get into medical school. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So, I mean, I always think that's interesting. I think a lot of people who end up in the creative arts kind of start with this need to be of service to be a healer of some sorts. Society doesn't really teach us that creativity is healing so much, right? It's not like go to, you know, become an artist because the world needs it. And and yet we do. <laughs> yeah, and it was a real struggle for me because I studied psychology. I started this job right out of college where I was taking care of a schizophrenic population out in Western Mass. And, you know, it was very intimate. It was, I think the title was called Direct Care Counselor. And, you know, I drove them to, I gave them their meds every day. I drove them to their doctor's appointments. I would drive to New Hampshire because the cigarettes there were cheaper. And I, because I was in charge of their finances, they got a certain amount of money from the state because they're just, they're on disability. So they got a certain amount of money every month and they had to have their cigarettes. So I would drive to New Hampshire to get them their cigarettes and like truck fulls because we had several client patients slash clients. But yeah, I, I like struggled because I knew that I couldn't do that for the rest of my life. And I knew I had this sort of creative drive within me that felt very selfish at the time because I was like taking care of these like uh, mentally ill people. And the idea of like going to New York City and like learning how to design clothes just felt so self-indulgent. I think that the conclusion I came to at the time was that I have to survive my own self before I can do any good in the world, you know, and, and finding what you're really supposed to be doing and making yourself the happiest version of your, you is actually a service because then you open yourself up to be able to find other ways to contribute to sort of society and the greater good. That's incredibly self-aware to have at that age. Is that, did you truly come to that at that age or did did you rationalize it after the fact? (laughs) I did come to that conclusion at that age, but I didn't think it, I don't think it was like fully realized. Like it was a selfish sort of conclusion realistically because I needed to find a way out of that path. I think that's how our brain works sometimes is we organize 
the reason that we can feel good about in order to do the thing that our soul knows we need to do. Right. And then we have to like reverse engineer what is the story I'm going to tell myself and the public about why I'm doing this. And it was tough. You know, when I came, first came to New York, I would see homeless people on the subway and the street and I would know their story. Once you've worked with schizophrenic people for even just a short amount of time, you really see their affects and you can see it in the homeless population a lot here. And I saw it, it was so pronounced when I first moved here because I had just come straight from that job and I had a lot of guilt about it for sure. How did you process that guilt? It is a sort of thwarting of your own potential and power to not do what it is or not find how you can express yourself most fully or to not make yourself the happiest and most fulfilled you can possibly be. But that guilt is a real thing to contend with, especially if it's something that you feel really akin to in that your mom was kind of engaged in this work and it feels like it's in your DNA and you care deeply. Yeah, the reality was... For those of us who have to work every day, I, you go to college and then you get a job and then you wake up every morning and you go to work. You realize like this is this is your life. This is like the one life. You got one pass, right? When you're in it and you're just like not feeling right. It's not that I wasn't happy when I was working in social services. It's just you just know there's like a discomfort in your own skin when you're doing that. And it's your every single day life. And I think I just did realize, like, there's no do-overs. I can't just pretend that this is going to be enough for me if I just keep going down this path. I have to be true because I, I just knew I wasn't going to be the kind of person who could live a total life of leisure. I knew I had to work. I knew I had to get up every day to go to somewhere to earn money. That was enough for me to sort of know that, no, this isn't right. And I can't just like sacrifice my own sanity and my own happiness to try to help these people. Force yourself, yeah, into an itchy existence every day. I mean, that's kind of how I describe it is like your soul's itchy. And if you've had a few moments, a, a few uh, glimpses of a non-itchy soul, and you know that there's a direction that you could pursue that might mean <laughs> a non-itchy soul every day, then... I can see the kind of engineer brain from your dad um, kicking in and starting to design your life like in a more appropriate way. So you said that you went to New York to study fashion design, but can we sort of back up and figure out how you even got interested in fashion design or knew that that might be something to pursue? Like, does it go back to your teenage years? Yeah, I mean, I think I was certainly enamored with fashion and enamored with figuring out how to make a style when you're in like high school and like everybody just wears Abercrombie and Fitch and like I grew up in a time where you couldn't just go online and like find the world at your fingertips like I really thought about like how I presented myself with my outfits and things like that so like I had this sort of interest in style as like a communicator of who I was also going back to the fact that I was like the only Asian girl, like one of four, whatever it was, you know, me and Ruby Wang. And I never really thought it was a path that I could go down. It was just something that I was interested in. And 
again, when I was sort of like faced with that reality of waking up and going to work every day, I started to take it a little bit more seriously of like, well, maybe it could be fashion, you know? And I also have this really strong memory of a Vogue art issue that it's kind of iconic now. There was a um, shoot where it was like an Alice in Wonderland shoot like all these different designers sort of like made their take on, like they also dressed up and it was this very like fantastical editorial shoot. And it was so artful. I, th- I think I was like so drawn in by the idea that it was artful and like fantastical, but also something that I participated in every day that sort of held me. I was kind of famously known for like not hold not having a long attention span like I learned violin (laughs) for like a year and like sucked at it you know like I didn't have the kind of attention span to like really be about anything when I was that age but that was one thing that was able to sort of hold me was this idea that like fashion and style and design could be both something in your dream but also something that you do every day. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Whenever I'm in a room with web professionals, I hear a lot of shop talk about Wix Studio. Wix Studio is beloved by both designers and developers because it gives them the quality and flexibility to do exceptional work efficiently so they can do what they do best without the grind and deliver projects on time. Designers love Wix Studio because it combines pure web design with maximum productivity. With intuitive layout tools, designers can create unique layouts with an intuitive grid that allows them to add emphasis and standout style. And they can save entire custom site templates, text themes, color palettes, and components to use them time and again. And developers love Wix Studio because it gives them the flexibility and speed they need to take a wide range of projects end-to-end, with code-level control over the front-end and back-end. Devs can either use Wix-made or third-party APIs. Plus, they can work online in a VS code-based IDE or code locally and push changes via GitHub. I may not be an expert in website creation, but I do know a lot about how to design and build, and there is nothing more exciting to the creative process than a well-stocked toolkit that helps me do my best work. To learn more, go to Wix Studio or simply click on the Clever Resources link in the description.
fashion is a way of expressing yourself to the world. But that Vogue cover gave you the bridge to thinking of it as also like the way I'm putting myself together is also the beginning of my creative agency. And this is the aspirational length to which I could go with this creative agency. Completely. I mean, I got goosebumps. Me too. Me too. I I actually haven't like thought of it in that way, but absolutely that Vogue editorial was so groundbreaking for me to see because it was like, this is more than just clothes or looking pretty, you know, like I think there's like this big pitfall that people have around fashion is that it's like a vain pursuit, but those kind of editorials that really like tapped into a sense, a sensory experience, even just in the pages of a magazine, man, those really stayed with me. So when you finally gave yourself permission to explore fashion academically and made the decision to go to New York to study fashion, did you have any resistance from your family? Did you have full support? Did you have this kind of excitement or fear? How did you actually line it up so that you could go to Parsons? I had resistance from my family, but not in a way that was hindering. It was more just questions and making sure that it really was what I wanted to do and making sure that this was, this was, this made sense and that kind of thing. I will say that I want to talk about my trip abroad to Taiwan, which I took before I moved to, before all of this, before I worked in mm. social services, because that was, that was sort of my eye opening experience talking about my revelation of leaving social services and all that, like this was the precursor to that self-awareness was going to Taiwan and living there by myself and studying Chinese because it was just like, I went there by myself. I I mean, I had family there, but it wasn't close family and it wasn't in the city where I was going to be. And I just sort of went and lived as an adult, even though I was kind of still a kid, and realized how big the world was and how powerful I could be within it by myself and how I could actually like do anything. And that that experience sort of changed my entire perspective of my life, of who I was, of, you know, like growing up as the fourth Chinese kid in the grade and then going to Taiwan, you know, like five years later and realizing I'm one of many, but I'm still very special and all these sort of beautiful revelations that required me to think hard as a young person um, in in an existential way sort of gave me the agency to make choices about my life very young that were very sort of pointed and and intentional. So by the time I had said I'm moving to New York, I'm go- I got accepted to Parsons. I'm going to study fashion. I think my family had already known this per- version of me that was sort of assertive and strong and determined to to sort of guide my life in the way that I knew I wanted it to be. So the resistance was just sort of concern and it was like a supportive resistance, I guess you can say. I I think I get what you're getting at. It's like just asking the right questions to make sure 
that you know what you're getting into and that you feel assured of your decision, but then also needing to hear your assurance to convince them. Yeah. And actually, you know, my dad was like, you know, Providence has a great art school (laughs) (laughs) because I think a lot of their reticence was actually just me moving to New York City by myself, never mind going to study fashion and all that kind of stuff. So, but I also had a really support. My older brother, um, he studied finance and he kind of always did what he was supposed to do. And he's an amazing older brother, an amazing son, amazing man. But I think at that point in his life, specifically, he was having a lot of challenges with the choices that he had made with his career and his happiness and his itchiness. I think he was really like seeing in me an opportunity to find something special and new and different and something that not that wasn't really like prescribed to me since I was born. And he was really supportive. So he actually kind of made it financially possible for me to do it. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. And we're not a rich clan, the, you know, the lens of North (laughs) Rome, Massachusetts, (laughs) but I've been very fortunate to have them be so supportive of all of the things that like my zany ideas and my zany things that I want to do that are just so foreign to what they are used to and what they know. And that's a great example of my dad being like, well, I don't know how you're going to do this. How are you? I got, I got a little bit of a scholarship, but they're like, how are you going to pay for food and da, da, da. And, and my brother Jason was like, I got all this money. I don't, I, I don't, I don't have anything to do with it. Why don't you just take some and we can make sure that you can do this. Oh, that really warms my heart. Yeah, that's a really important precursor, I think, to where you're coming from with the Colony Co-op, which we'll we'll get to. I really like that you told me that story. So what was Parsons for you? And what was studying fashion design? Did your horizons crack open? Parsons was the first time I was able to be only creative and not worry about what that meant. It changed the way that I moved in the world. It changed the way that I thought about creativity. It changed the way I thought about hard work. I mean, it was hard. It was so hard. It was hard because of the curriculum, but it was hard because I cared so much about learning and and doing and finding. And it taught me how to work hard. A hundred percent. Like I didn't really work hard before I went to Parsons. I, I kind of, I worked. Sometimes it was hard. Sometimes it was easy. But when I went to Parsons, I worked really hard and I worked really hard for like extended periods of time without rest, without sleep. And it was not because it was what was expected of me. It was because like I found my way there. I borrowed money from my brother. I made that choice to be there. And I felt like I owed it to myself and my brother and my family and everyone, all the people who I left at my old job who are mentally ill. Like I owed it to everything that like led up to that to do my very best and do everything I could to, to like be a sponge and learn everything that there was to be learned in that moment. There's a difference between working hard because the job is hard or because it's expected of you and this sort of self-driven, determined 
hard work because you can feel yourself propelling your own self forward. And all of the circumstances that got you there sort of become the fuel in your motor. I mean, it can be, it sounds also like you pushed yourself in a way that totally expanded your concept, your self-concept and your creative agency. And then now could potentially be an unbalanced way of working. But I mean, I think that we all need to go through that in our youth, particularly when we're learning so that we can feel what the edges are of what kind of hard work we're capable of and and how just how strong we are. Yeah. Actually. I mean, I think that for me, it was just the beginning and it was like a, it's been a crescendo of that kind of mentality of hard work for like the better part of my career from there until now. Only to, until recently have I had the faith in what I've built the sort of world directly around me to be able to like let off of the gas a little bit and let myself be healthier as a, as an individual um, personally and trust that it's not all going to just like crumble down around me. Parsons was the first time I worked hard. And then I think I worked hard from that. Ever since. Ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Even in just the past like two years, have I been able to really say like, it's going to be okay if I just don't go to the very edge. Yeah, that's an interesting precipice to get to because I think that there is this fear that it's all going to crumble if we don't keep working as hard as we always have. And yet there's this opposing fear that we're going to crumble if we keep working as hard as we have been. The way that I did it was, it wasn't a fear that I was going to crumble. It was kind of the certainty and me just sort of like putting it off, trying to put it off as long as possible. I honestly think it was the pandemic, like waking up and like getting out of bed and then like going to my computer at in my kitchen, like in on my dining table, probably surprising. I, I obsessively work out all that stuff. So like I used to have this whole big routine and I would get up so early, you know, and just like work, 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 work. And the pandemic kind of forced me to like, be like, oh, I can't do that. Like my, my commute is like five seconds. I think it's interesting, the perspective shift. A lot of us got like a real wake up in terms of just how we were driving ourselves and our bodies and where we were spending our energy Talk to me about your sort of early professional life before you founded Colony, because Colony is what you're doing now, in addition to the other things that you do. I look at this sort of early professional life as the stepping stones that got you into position to sort of launch yourself into this really important sole purpose that you're doing right now. Yeah, so I graduated from Parsons. I got offered a job immediately, design assistant with a celebrity fashion line. So I worked for JLo's like fashion brand in her first runway show. And now, you know, like I, I'm so like heady about fashion and design and style and, you know, like dreams. And, and then like this, this like JLo, like this pop star comes and is like, here's a salary. Here's a, here's health insurance. You can be a designer. 
it was like so against what I thought I was about, but I was like, I need a job, so I'm going to take it. You know what I mean? I got that job. I was I had been working interning, but also working for Princess Schooler before that, which is more of like a design label. But like I could have kept going there, but they weren't really paying me. And it was like, no, I need a job. So I'm just going to take this job with this kind of like icky brand. And I worked so hard. Of course, I worked so hard because that was my thing at that point. I was there until 2 a.m. They asked me to dye a cashmere sweater, a white cashmere sweater, red, but they only gave me like writ dye and like the bathroom and some trash bags and stuff like that, you know. So I worked really hard and the fashion show happened. So it was probably like three months, four months. And after the show, they, they let me go. And I didn't know. I was so green. I didn't know that that was a thing that people just like tell young designers that they can be have a job and a steady income and insurance and all this stuff. And they really only needed bodies. Fully knowing it was temporary. That's kind of predatory. I don't know, but that's certainly how it felt. It was me and like several other people, young designers at that time worked there. And then they just at the, after the show, it was literally like a week after the show, everyone was cut loose. And I was devastated. You know, I, I cried in the street. I didn't know what to do. I was like, what am I going to do now? I left this great internship. I left this great path that I really believed in to be like a more like sort of design designer and now I'm now my only like resume piece is like (laughs) J-Lo you know so that was really tough I got another job I you know I I got fired from that job too like so in fashion my sort of life in fashion was about working hard and then getting let go because it was just like cutthroat and that's the cycle of the fashion industry right I mean particularly at that time. I, I don't know if it's still the same, but that's was my understanding of it as well. Get young bodies, use them, squeeze them up, and then cut your extras when you don't need them anymore. Yeah. And when I look back on it, that's when I realized I wanted to work for myself, period, full stop, because I am a hard worker. And if I'm going to stay up till two in the morning, it's going to be building something that I believe in and that I know won't fire me in two months, (laughs) you know, I realized that if I was ever lucky enough to be in a position to have employees or to be in a position to have managed people who are sort of working for me, I would treat them with dignity and respect and as creatives, the creatives that they are. Like when I was working, nobody asked me what my thoughts were. Nobody thought, asked me what I did you know, in my free time, which I didn't have any, but like, if I had any dreams, they were not on the table. And for me now, with my company and my employees and my designers and my students, you know, like, I feel like it's just such an important part of the way that I operate is finding space for the creativity of the people who are supporting my dream. What happened was I was like, I'm starting my own line. And I was like 20 nothing years old, you know, like I was not in a place where I should have been doing that. But I just felt like, so motivated, so motivated to have my own company and be an entrepreneur and 
be my own boss. So I started my own line. It was called Dressed in Yellow. It was very sweet. I cared about it greatly. I worked very hard. But, you know, like all those things, they are very hard to start up. And honestly, I probably wasn't the best fashion designer. (laughs) So So I did that for a few years. But while I was doing that, I looked for another job that I could do and earn money because I wasn't earning any money when I was working from Dressed in Yellow. So that was when I started writing. I got a job writing for this newsletter. It covered um, commercial interior design. It's called Office Insight, and I think it still exists. That was how I learned about the world of design. You know, like I thought design was fashion. I didn't know that there was like a capital D design out there, you know, and what part of my job was to like go to events. So I would like go to the openings at Moss in New York. Oh, really? Yeah. That's going to be like foundational experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like so young. I didn't know anybody. And I was just like this little twerp in the corner, like drinking my wine. But I was just so in awe of like everything that was going on around me. And I really kind of gravitated to those moments that like I mean look commercial interior is wonderful right but there's moments that are a little bit less exciting and then there are moments that are kind of like transformational yeah well and Moss would be one of those the way that the curatorial agenda at Moss was one that celebrated the sort of artistic end of design with a capital D but also the openings were had a theatrical flair to them so it would have been like the design version of your Vogue Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Editorial shoot. Yeah, I can see why that would be so exciting for you. I mean, Moss is on a pedestal in my mind. Like, it was like the pinnacle. And and with Colony, too, like, there's like a few reference points that I I look back to and I think about and I I work towards with what we're doing at Colony. And Moss, Moss is like probably number one. It's definitely top five, you know? <laughs> um, I started writing about commercial interiors. He sent me to Milan, my boss at the time. So that was another one. But, you know, I was, I was like also interviewing the like principal of Perkins and Will and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and just like really understanding that the built environment has this impact on us beyond what I really understood at the time. So that was transformative. I I held on to the dress in yellow thing for quite some time, but I really started to feel this sort of like kinship and kindred like draw to design with a capital D. And it was things like Moss. It was things like Milan Design Week. It was even things like companies like Steelcase and Vitra and Herman Miller and Knoll, like they had these like amazingly rich histories, but also this like very human centered way about thinking about commerce and, and develop and product development and all this kind of stuff. So I was really, really drawn to it. And it really felt, I was like learning a language that I, I spoke when I was a kid it felt like I was coming home in a way you know like really finding my like stride there I think when you do find something that clicks so resoundingly there is a a kind of mystery too to like well where did this come from 
why does this feel so familiar and so comfortable for me? And why do I feel like this is the area where I can really start to exert my full power? Psychology wasn't an accident, you know, like I was always interested in people and how like sociology and how people sort of interact with each other and realizing that so much of that was sort of influenced and controlled by these other things that people actually make and people actually think of and people actually research just felt so eye-opening to me. Um, And then on top of that, you know, the idea that we can evoke emotion. The first time that I went to Milan, I was just like, what the hell is like what (laughs) my mind like the saying your mind is blown is like is like an understatement for how I felt the first time I went to Milan I cried when I was on the bus going to the airport I was like crying because I could not believe what I had just experienced it was because it was emotional like I felt it and I couldn't it hit me like a ton of bricks because I didn't know that that was possible I didn't know that that's what was in store for me that week I tried to explain it to people and you just can't like it's just like you just experience it and the idea that you you can just be drawn into this emotional experience through things and colors and light and walls and furniture is like, what? I was just blown away. And I feel that way about Moss too. How old were you and what year was this for context? Mid to early 20s. I was very young. I was in a rush. I, I graduated all my, my degrees in like two, three years. Like I was always in a rush back then. Um, so that's why it feels like it packed into a lot of a short amount of time because I was so young. Obviously, this is setting the stage. How did you get to founding Colony and what was the what compelled you and what was the impetus behind that and what was the mission and what were you hoping to accomplish? Well, I was working and writing for this newsletter and I still had this like drive to start my own business and do my own thing. And then the newsletter let me go. So that, I mean, like literally my work experience before I started my own thing was just a, a series of, of failures and getting let go. But I, and which is fine, you know, it's part of the experience of getting stronger. So I started my own blog. And at that time, you know, Jamie of Design Milk fame and Clever Podcast fame can tell you, like, at that time when we started our blogs, it was the thing. I was like, this is it. The blog is going to be the thing. So I started a blog that was very similar to the newsletter, except it was a little bit more geared towards, like, a younger audience because the newsletter was more geared towards, like, the principals versus the associates. So I started a blog that was geared towards commercial interiors, kind of, but a little bit more young, a little bit more people focused. And I thought that was going to be the thing that I was going to do there for the rest of my life. It wasn't. <laughs> I ended up selling that blog to a company called Designer Pages. And Designer Pages is an online product database. Um, but they had at the time, I think they still might have it, but they had at a t- the time a media arm. And Auto was sort of rolled into the media part of Designer Pages. And they hired me to run all of the media side of the company. 
Oh, I also worked as a trend forecaster while I was doing auto. So the other story of my life is like trying to do my own thing, but also needing to make money. So finding other jobs. So while I was doing my blog, I also got a job working as a trend forecaster for a company called WGSN based in London. And that was a really interesting experience because I was like literally forced to see everything. I had to go to like all the trade shows, all everything and just like see it. And sometimes my opinion was layered on top, but usually it was more important about just like seeing it all and kind of dispersing the, the information in like a cohesive way distilling out patterns. Interesting. So that was the job I did right before I sold the blog. It's interesting because I'm starting to put together all the different like layers of experience you have that would make you good at what you're doing right now. It's a wide swath of what I do now. And then I was working at Designer Pages. I Hurricane Sandy happened. This is when I usually start the birthplace of Colony because I did a show with my friend Jen. We invited designers, local New York designers, to create work out of debris from the storm. And we sold it for um, storm relief. So that was like the first time I was in a curatorial role. That was the first time I put on a show. That was the first time I stepped kind of off the screen into like the 3D world of physical objects, how to install a sconce. You know, we did it. The first show was at Ling Rose in Soho. They very generously sort of let us sort of take over their space for three days and it was really magical. And from that, I kind of just sort of like became friends with all of these independent designers in the area and this community. Not only independent designers, but independent designers who would be the kind of independent designers who would also be willing to give up their time and energy and expertise to create work yeah. for a charitable cause. So there is a kind of coming together of for for a group greater good at the genesis of all of this. Yes, exactly. And that first show felt like this is it, right? This is the thing. This is what I've been sort of searching for from the time I like flipped through Vogue and to all the way through like working with like in social services all the way through the whole thing, right? I have goosebumps again. This does feel to me like all of Jean is coming to the party now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. It was magic, and and I didn't want to let that magic go. It is the first time I really intimately understood their businesses, but those independent studios better, and what they actually had to do. But the reality also to that was, I felt whole, and I didn't want to let that go. And that's a huge part of the story that I don't really talk about because it was like. I had been looking for this, you know. I'd been looking for an outlet for my creativity that also talked about community, that also was working towards some sort of greater good. So I found it, and but then it was over. <laughs> but we did another one during Design Week the next May, and that also informed sort of like the importance of space, physical space, the price of physical space, the challenges that. Independent designers face with showing their work and the costs and everything around that. The idea of Colony came about between the first Reclaim NYC show and the second, and then it became more of a reality after the second one. And planning and the the jumping off the deep end part was happened after the second show. So let's give our listeners the overview of what Colony is and how it's different from, let's say, other sort of independent maker gallery situations. Yeah, so Colony is structured more along the lines of a cooperative. The traditional gallery works in a commission base. So they generally take 40 to 60% commission on every sale. Um, For the independent designer or maker, that is a really tough proposition because everything costs more. Materials cost more when when you're buying it locally. You know, like their time costs more because they're paying for shop space in New York City or or an equivalent city. Um, And it just sort of squeezes their margin into almost nothing. What happens is they end up chasing their sales. So even if one of these galleries can sell at volume and, and sell like a lot of their work, they're still not really making a lot of money because every sale they have to give up so much of it. The idea behind Colony is more like a co-op. So they pay a monthly fee, the designers that we represent, and then we're able to squeeze the commission down to a fraction of what it generally is. So the idea is that they can, the designers that we represent are able to grow with their sales rather than chasing their margins. Um, the idea is that they can hopefully use us as a tool to grow their business, almost like inside sales. And that's what it is. That's what it's been for for eight years. And there's a physical space that functions like 
I would say more like a gallery than a showroom because it's very curated and it's it's an evolving experience of all of the things that you've grown attuned to in your life and expertise. So it's not only a place to discover independent makers, it's a place to keep returning, to kind of keep rediscovering. I would say maybe here's also where your trend forced forecasting comes in because it does feel like a place where you can go to kind of tap into what's coming down the the pike, what feels like very emergent, but not in a challenging way. And I mean that in the the best possible way. I I think because you work with independence and you're also so attuned to the world of design, your curatorial representation of what you're doing in, in the gallery is a really important way of sewing together different aspects of the independent maker ecosystem in a way that presents it in its full glory. Oh, thanks. Including like craftsmanship, but there's a there's an ambiance, there's a tactility, there's a sensuality that comes together in colony that really celebrates the individual maker as well as the the whole movement. Wow, thank you. <laughs> There's like this sort of practical side of what Colony is, which is the co-op and the support that we're offering the design community. But also there's that magical side, the dream side, which is so important. I've always made that such a priority for me, which is keeping the curatorial vision very focused and true and never compromising on that, you know, and I think that's part of the fabric of what we do. And it doesn't really always make it into the headlines because I think the co-op side is so radical to do what we're doing on that side. But what we're doing on the other side is all those things that I've talked about, like going to Milan and feeling a space, going to Moss month after every month they had it right and just feeling so at the pulse the very very pulse of what design was and that that has never left me that is always what i'm reaching for every single new decision we make every single new project we do it's always about that and if we fall short which we do you know like then the decision is like well, does this even make it out into the world? Or are we even, you know, like, are we even going to do this? Because it's just falling short from that, like, high, high bar of what we're trying to accomplish. So here's what I think is also fascinating about the way you've built this. The co-op aspect of it is disruptive or radical. But I think in a way that's actually really harmonious, because it doesn't so much challenge the existing gallery ecosystem as much as it supports and uplifts the independent category of artist and maker to the place where they can opt in or opt out of the gallery ecosystem if they want to. But they can't even get there if they can't sort of be nurtured in this stage. So the co-op part is really important, but the dream part is what makes the co-op part work. And you've built Colony so that you can protect that dream part by generating other streams of revenue so that you don't have to chase sales. There's something I want to say very maternal about that in that you recognize the dream part 
as being this fragile state of being that needs protection and needs space to grow and needs to be constantly evolving. So can't respond to like certainty or knowns or metrics. And so in order to protect that and the co-op part, you've generated sort of side businesses within Colony, including Colony Consult, your consulting business and interior design, so that you can support the whole thing. And I think this is amazing. I think this is an engineer's mind. I think this is an <laughs> entrepreneurial, like, I think this is creativity infused in your entrepreneurial mindset. But I think there's also a very powerful femininity in this way that you've built your business to protect the fragile parts and keep nourishing them with the resources that they need to thrive. Yeah, I mean, wow, Amy, I've never heard anyone articulate it in that way, but it is how I feel. It is so true. Like, I'm fiercely protective of that part of what we do. And I'm also 100% convinced that it's the reason that we're even successful. And the consultancy is also sort of like a result of that mentality of like, this is really special. And if we do this right, people will want to work with us. People will want to work with us. They will feel it and they will want to come and they will want to be able that we will find a way, you know, and that's what happened. That's what has happened. And the consultancy was reactive more than anything else. It, it was reactive, but it was also part of the plan because I felt so strongly that if we protect that curatorial vision, if we put something out that touches people and makes them feel, then they're going to seek us out. Then people are going to seek us out and want a piece of that sort of feeling and that magic that we're able to create. It's weird when you have an idea and it's like such a leap of faith and a leap of an investment, like all the things that are scary. And then you can say like, well, wow, that really did work out the best way that I thought it could. Yeah. I mean, I just want our listeners to know that when you started Colony, it was a real leap. Like you scraped together your entire life savings to sign a five-year lease on your first space. And that means you are all in. I used all of my money that brother that helped me get to Parsons, I used some of his. <laughs> I paid him back, but I, you know, like that support did not end at Parsons. It has continued on through my entire adult life. I always think of myself as the underdog for that for so many different reasons, but a huge part of it is like I jump in fearlessly and it's either stupidity or it's brave. I'm not sure. I'm still not sure if it's like, I'm like being reckless or if I'm being brave, I think one of those things has to exist for like a normal gal like me from Massachusetts to be able to do something in New York city that has, has a stamp and to be able to be talking to you on this podcast, like to be able to make some sort of stamp on the world for us, like mere normal people, mortals, like we have to take huge risks and make big sacrifices. And that's kind of what I had to do. I had to say like, okay, this is all the money. This is the, all of the experience. I'm just going to go for it. And I, because I believe it, you know, I believe. 
I love that it's a combination of bravery and recklessness. And I think you're right. It's, it's both. I mean, not that you weren't calculating your risks. It's that you just had no guarantees at all. Yeah. It's weird to like pat myself on the back for it, but it's also kind of just the reality of my life and what Colony is. And I, I feel proud. And I also feel like people can't really understand what Colony is unless they really understand that part of it, you know? I mean, I think it's such an important piece of the design ecosystem, what Colony is, and not just because you're curating and celebrating this kind of corner of the scene, but because you're designing a new way forward and you're a model for how people can make their own cocktail of bravery and recklessness and chart new territory in the world you know, whether they're consider themselves a creative or not. Um, There's another area of your life where you made some really intentional decisions based on belief. You recently became a mother. Congratulations. And um, (laughs) I don't think I'm giving anything away here. This was not an accident. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't. I would love for you to tell me that story because I've seen pictures of, of your child who's just beautiful, laughing, gorgeous capsule of joy. (laughs) Yeah. If you've made it this far in the podcast, you know (laughs) that I work very hard. I'm very career driven. I've always have been since that moment I realized I had to wake up every day and go to work and make money. I think that that younger version of myself always assumed that I could have it all. You know, like I just assumed that it would all work out. I could have my own business and I could have a beautiful family. I could get married and all the things that you're supposed to want when you're just kind of starting out in adulthood. And as I kind of progressed through my career and, you know, each step along the way, it felt like pushing a cart with no wheels up a mountain with no trail, you know, like it <laughs> it felt hard and it felt like it took all of my life energy to make these things happen. And I started to realize when I was younger, like maybe a little older, not quite as young, but younger than I am now, that these things aren't just going to happen for me. And I'm going to have to make sacrifices. I'm going to have to make decisions. I'm going to have to be intentional about how this one path at life goes for me. I always knew I wanted to have kids. I always knew I wanted children in my life story. I didn't always know what that would look like. I didn't know if I would find the right guy and get married. I didn't know if I would adopt. I didn't know what that would look like. I was very open to whatever it was, but I, I always kind of knew I wanted that as part of my life if, it, if I was so lucky to have that. But I was also really wanted to be a business owner and I really wanted to make my own stamp on, like professionally too. So yeah, there was just like a lot of years where I chose not to get married. I've been so lucky to be in so many great relationships and have so many amazing people around me in my life. But for a long time, it was just sort of like my work and I need to do this because I got myself in this and I have to, I need to make this work. And what 
that what that takes is I, I always say it's like my entire life force has to go into making colony work because I just signed over all of my money into this physical space that doesn't have a floor. And now there are these people that are also relying on it for their life force, but also you painted this incredibly accurate picture of pushing a cart with no wheels up a mountain with no trails. Like when you're halfway up the mountain, you kind of can't, you can't go back down. You can't go up. You have to just wait till you can get to a higher perch before you can even branch out and do anything else. So the motherhood thing just had to wait and wait and relationships started, relationships ended, relationships started again I became very empowered in the past few years to realize that it's not going to look the way that you read it in the fairy tales when you're little. I felt like I built a business and that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And if I can do that, I can do just about anything. So I decided to have a baby (laughs) and I didn't wait. I mean, I waited until pretty much the last possible minute and I didn't know if it would be possible just physically at my age, if I was able to, if I would be able to. And, but I, I just knew that if I didn't try, I would be regretful. And I knew that I had kind of subconsciously been building my life for that very moment of being able to make that decision on my own, to my own accord, under my own sort of rules and and just doing it my way. So then I did it. I feel so, so, so lucky that I was, because I have so many friends that struggled with fertility and struggled with building their own families and have, getting pregnant and all that stuff. So I didn't know what, what I was getting into, but I just felt really lucky that I was able to. And I even had to sort of brace myself that I wasn't going to be able to and what that would look like for me. And, you know, I did come to a place where I was okay with that future as well because I had a miscarriage, all this stuff. So being a woman is like the most magical thing and the hardest thing. And like, it's just this like thing that we half of us have on as like a shared experience. That story, which includes like the miracle of life and the grief of death, all wrapped up into an intentional journey towards something that you believed in, but also had to be very, like, in a way detached from in case it it didn't happen. It is a really glorious and bittersweet and tough unfolding of creative power in your own like physical body's ability to create life. It's like accepting the fact that you can't control it all, but fighting like hell to just get the best version of what you think you want in your life and doing your best to make it happen, And but accepting that you don't have full control. And it's the most beautiful thing that I've ever done. And I'm going to cry because it's just, it's all the things that you hear, like you roll your eyes at. Five years ago, I would have rolled my eyes because I would, I told my, because like, I had to build the business, you know, (laughs) but I can't believe this is my life now. It's kind of just like he comes to work with me. He's in the back of colony and sometimes it's annoying, but sometimes most (laughs) of the times it's really amazing. And it was my choice. And I have to say, like, I don't want to get too political or anything, but 
we have the ability within us to build beautiful things as women, lasting things professionally, personally, but we can't do it if we don't have our own choice and will and if we are shackled by outside forces. Um, and to me, that's a matter of humanity and not politics. Agreed. A hundred percent agreed. That's how I feel. Like the experience of becoming a mother has made me feel about it, feel it stronger and more with more conviction. And I still think colony is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> 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 well, motherhood lasts a lifetime, right? That's so That's there's true. still time. That's true. That's so true. I couldn't have done any of it. Colony, Juno, any of it. If I hadn't been empowered as a woman, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful for the path that I was able to go on because every single step gave me that it's like the video games when you like get more green power. It's like every single <laughs> step along the way has given me more green power to do the things that I think are important and that I want to see in my own life. And my hope is that that can continue. And that, and also that I can sort of empower more people. It doesn't have to be only women, like young people, you know, like I, that's also part of what drives me now too, is that I think I was so lucky to be empowered the way that I have been. And I feel an imperative need to pass that along to whoever it is behind me that needs it also. Amen. And also, thank you for using your, your life force and all of your energy to not just build a thing, but build a platform, build a, a way for things to grow through you. I think, I think that's your way of using your life force to amplify the good that you're able to do in the world. Thanks, Amy. It's really inspiring. Thank, thank you. you so much for sharing your story, Jean. Of course, thank you for having me. This has been great. Thanks for listening. To see images and learn more about Jean and her work, read the show post. Click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go directly to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you like Clever, we'd love your support. Please subscribe, rate, review, make a donation, tell your friends about us, or take advantage of our sponsor offers. We also love hearing from you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 